head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Everybody, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You are tuned in to Black on the Air. It is nice to have you here, everybody. Hope you guys are doing well in this month of October. <laughs> We're barreling towards the holidays already. Man, it comes too fast. I am never ready for it. But we have a really, really fun episode uh, today with uh, Jay Ellis, of course, Lawrence on Insecure, and uh, Walter Thompson Hernandez, writer for the New York Times. They're talking about a new project, a podcast that they have called Written Off, where they have uh, some formerly incarcerated young writers uh, presenting their vulnerable poems and honest stories um, with celebrities reading them and that kind of stuff. It's really a great program, and we get in and talk about that and. And I hope you enjoy it. Um, it's a really cool conversation. So, man, there's so much bullshit happening in the world right now. It's just exhausting, too, to try to, <sighs> to, try to cover it all. Uh, I'm like, which one do, do you talk about? I'll tell you what I try to do, you guys. And you know this from me, for people that listen to me a lot. If I can give a new insight or a different angle to something, that's when I like to weigh on it. If I feel like I'm just saying the same things that other people are saying, then I'm like, mm, I don't know. Like, I, I I wondered if I should weigh in on the Kyrie Irving stuff for you basketball fans out there. Um, Kyrie Irving plays for Brooklyn Nets, has always been, uh, let's just say kindly, has not always been in the mainstream of what we would consider groupthink for obvious things like the shape of the world. You know, I think it was a flat earther at one point or that type of thing. Kyrie's in kind of a world of his own. Not saying that Kyrie is dumb or stupid or that type of thing. I think he's a very thoughtful person, Kyrie Irving. He does a lot for his community. I know that. 
if you he he's always been said to be a really nice guy. He's he's very you know what the word is. Kyrie is very um, eccentric. He's very eccentric. You don't know which way he's gonna move on something, you know. And to me, usually, and I'll tell you here. Here's the thing, Kyrie. Let's put it this way: what Kyrie does for a living, he's a genius at. Okay, he's a genius basketball player. And there are a lot of geniuses out there who are just eccentric. And I think Kyrie is an eccentric. I think that's the best way to put it. Okay, so let's talk. His, here's what his situation is. So he has not gotten vaccinated. And as we talked about last week, the basketball players, you know, the way the league has handled it, there's not a league mandate for vaccinations. And remember when I talked about it last week, that the players were interestingly kind of conservative with their views on vaccinating whether it was LeBron James or Draymond Green from Golden State, they were saying, look, I thought about this. I did what was best for me and for my family. You know, I don't think I have the right to tell another player what they should do. I made the decision of what's best for me. That's what LeBron said. That's what Draymond Green said. That's what another couple of players said. But their conclusion was that they should get vaccinated. That was the end of it. So nobody said anything. They were like, oh, okay, cool. And But I'm just making the point that I pointed out that this is an interesting position. They're not advocating, you know, for people to get vaccinated, which you would think would be a good thing to do. Like people were hoping LeBron James would say, Hey guys, please get vaccinated. Please, please, please. You know, there are so many people of color, so many just uh, vulnerable people, whether age or whatever, who are dying from this, get that first level of protection. You know, it's not the be all end all, but it is the first level of protection. Get vaccinated. No, LeBron said, who am I to tell anybody I did what's best for my family? You know, blah, blah, blah. And I just found that very interesting. So Kyrie Irving basically has said the same thing. I got to do what's best for me. I'm thinking about what's best for my family. And I choose not to get vaccinated. Man. So when he came to the different conclusion at the end, the world went crazy. Stephen A. Smith is calling him stupid and he's selfish and he's only thinking about himself and all this stuff. And all these people came out. I think Jay Williams, who's on ESPN, is the only one who kind of said, hey, guys, there's another way to look at this, you know. Uh, But it's interesting to me because he said the exact same thing that the other people said, that I'm thinking about what's best for me and my family. That's how he started it. He said, I'm not anti-vax. I just choose not to do it at this point. The caveat in all of this, for those of you not following, is that because he's not vaccinated, uh, the I believe it's the state of New York, you have to show proof of vaccination in order to be like at the Barclays Center where they play. And they have half of their games are home games, so he wouldn't be able to play in those home games unless you show proof of vaccination. Now, I don't know if it's just proof of vaccination or a positive test. I'm not sure. But the way it's been presented is you have to show proof of vaccination. So because he's not able to participate fully in these activities, his team, the Brooklyn Nets, said, look, Kyrie, if you're not going to be vaccinated, we can't have you just part-time. You know, you just, until you're vaccinated, you cannot play in any of our reindeer games. So Kyrie's like, look, man, I'm just trying to do what's best for me and my family, which is exactly what LeBron and Draymond Green said. But the, the, uh, and I'm only saying that because the criticism has been that he's selfish, but the other players said we're being selfish too. They just made a different choice, you know, at the end of that selfishness. And here's what I want to ask. I hope this is a fair question, guys. And as I told you, 
I think being vaccinated is the safest thing you can do. The odds of something bad happening to you are very low compared to the odds of something bad happening to you by contracting uh, full-blown COVID without any uh, protection. Yes, you can catch COVID uh, being vaccinated, as we've seen the breakthrough cases, but the odds of you getting really sick and dying are much lower if you have that level of protection before you get COVID. So absolutely, out of the gate, it is proven that vaccinations are going to help protect you from getting gravely ill, you know? And I think there is some protection. I think there's less proof of this, of the way that it's passed on. There's a, a, a lower chance of that. Although I don't subscribe when people say, I didn't get vaccinated for me. I got it to protect others. I'm like, fuck you, motherfucker. You get vaccinated to protect yourself first. Yes, it's nice if, if it protects others, but you do it to protect yourself first. That is how you protect others, sure. Or that's how you don't crowd the uh you know emergency rooms or that type of thing or take up all those resources by protecting yourself let's not lose sight of what it is okay so here's my and here's my question so Kyrie has had COVID so he probably has some level of protection some antibodies I don't know how much people would argue it's not as much as the vaccine sure you're right but let's not throw science out the door there's probably some level of protection here's my question though why can't he just get tested before every game? Like, why isn't isn't getting tested the thing that is going to enable you to play or not in that basketball game? And I'm just asking about Kyrie and his situation. Like, why does people jump to <laughs> just attacking him so much? Honestly, I don't understand why he's being attacked so much. He probably will get vaccinated because that's the rules they're imposing. And it's interesting that it's only maybe three arenas that that applies, you know, so you could probably play everywhere else. But I would think the most important thing or, you know, I would say an equally important thing is getting vaccinated is to get tested. Now, I know in California there are rules about arenas and that type of thing. Um, I'm going to go see the Rolling Stones. In fact, they're here in California. So if I stadium, so if I stadium says you have to show proof of vaccination or you have to show a negative test result, you know, in, from the last 72 hours. And they even have instant testing at the stadium, which I thought is pretty cool. So that's what I mean. They're, either of those in their mind is fine, vaccination or the negative test. Why is that not the case in basketball? I don't understand that. I don't understand it. I'm just putting that out as a question. If, if you have a religious exemption to this or you feel strongly about it as Kyrie for whatever his reasons, you know, as LeBron said and Draymond said, we should respect people's reasons. Why don't we respect his reason? And why don't they just say, all right, Kyrie, you just have to take a test before every game. It's going to be a pain in the ass for you, but that's what you have to do. I don't understand why they're not doing that. Just putting that out there. Why has no one brought that up? Yes, you could participate. Just take a test every day, motherfucker. All right. We just want to know you don't have COVID. That's all. Because the point is not to pass it on. I don't think people are. No one has said, I'm afraid for Kyrie. He might get COVID and die. No, people are concerned that you might have COVID and pass it on to someone if you're not vaccinated. Right. So if he gets tested, doesn't that at least alleviate that to some extent? I don't know. Just a question. Just a question I'm putting out there because, you know, I got to ask these things. Okay. Other thing that happened this week in the world of sports, interestingly enough. So John Gruden, who is the coach of the Las Vegas Raiders, was the coach, resigned last week, 
was forced to resign, whatever, because some emails came out. Initially, it was an email that came out like uh, that was from 10 years ago. We communicated with the then, I think, uh, one of the GMs or somebody who worked with the Washington football team, known, of course, as Washington Redskins back then, where he said some inappropriate things about one of the directors in the NFL. He was a black man, and he said he had some Michelin tire-sized lips or something like that. And people were mad about this. And he said, hey, I wasn't saying something racist. You know, I was, you know, I say that people that lie have rubber lips. And this is my way of describing it. Whatever. Obviously lying about that or whatever. We know that. We know that Nick was being racist. Um, but anyhow, it kind of blew over because people came to his defense. That I don't think he's racist. He's never done anything racist to me. You know, he's been really nice to me. I don't think he's doing anything wrong. But howsoever. <laughs> a couple of days later and you know he coached the game uh by the way last sunday and it looked like it was all gonna blow over <laughs> you know uh but then all these other things came out where he uh called uh roger goodell who's the commissioner of football he called him a homophobic slur and you know a lot of misogynistic comments and all kinds of just nasty stuff in there and he offered his resignation because he there was just no excuse now. And then that Michelin tired lip comment looked a little differently to people. <laughs> and so once again, this opens up a lot of discussions about, you know, this was said in private. He and by the way, he never really apologized for this. He just said, I didn't mean to hurt anybody, which, you know, maybe with those words, he didn't mean to hurt anybody. But there's a lot of questions about what your intentions actually were. Like, let me give you an example. One of the things that was in the emails was uh, the whole Colin Kaepernick situation. I guess they were discussing it and I'm paraphrasing, so I may get this wrong, but uh, I think he said, uh, cut that fucker or something like that, that he needs to be cut from the team. So even though he wasn't in the league at the time, you know, he was a private citizen, as you're saying in politics, he was advocating to someone who was in the league to cut Colin Kaepernick, you know, to basically, uh, you know, keep him out, push him out of the system. So his words actually meant a lot in those emails with a lot of the things that they said, you know. So it's interesting that a lot of people argued, too, like these were private. They were never meant to be seen. Should a person be punished for just saying Yes, they're unsavory, a lot of the things, but should they actually be punished for it when they didn't have that job and it wasn't there? Uh, can we really label this person a certain way because of this? Okay, so here's how I feel about a lot of this. And let me put it in this term, because I think we need a term to discuss this. And you know, I love words, guys. I love coming up with terms. So I have come up with a term that I call forest racism. Okay, forest racism. What is forced racism, Larry? Well, let me explain it. Forced racism is basically this, okay? Um, if a racist yells nigger in the forest and no black people are around to hear it, is he still being a racist? Forced racism. I say, of course that motherfucker is racist, yes. But many people argue, well, nobody heard him say nigger. Well, how can he be a racist? He's not a racist unless people hear it, unless black people hear it, right? So basically the forest in this situation is the email chain. Uh, 
And uh, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, that that uh, the echo of this racist comment and these other comments are allowing everyone to hear it. So, so for now, people know that he is this thing. But it is a good question. If we had never heard it, does it make the person, you know, a racist? And how will you ever know? This is a problem, you guys. Most of the thing, and by the way, we know there is a lot more forest niggering going on that we will never know. There is a lot going on, and not just from John Gruden, but there's a lot of forest niggering going on that we will just never know. Now, and it's not just forest racism the homophobia and all that stuff. Uh, many of the times we're concerned with what I call bullhorn racism, bullhorn misogyny, bullhorn homophobia, that which is explicit, that which is unmistakably those things. And we tend to go after those things first and they make a lot of noise. But it's this other one, the forest racism, misogyny, these things that to me can be even more insidious because they're harder to go after. They're harder to address, you know, to accuse somebody of it. And what is, what is the harm of this? You know, as soon as I heard this story, it made me think of this so-called joke from years ago. I heard this when I was in college. When does a black person become a nigger? And the answer was when they leave the room, you know? And it also made me think of how a lot of people many times viewed the country as the South is racist and the North isn't or wasn't because they based it on the Civil War where the North fought against slavery in the South uh, for it. But sorry, guys. Mm, that ain't how the country... <laughs> that ain't how the country came out of that fight against slavery. It's just different types of racism. It's just like in the South had bullhorn racism. You know where a Southerner stood, you know, but in the North... Those motherfuckers were some forest racists in the North. Nothing but forest racism. So much of it. And still exists to this day. You know, and the the outcomes of that type of forest racism, whether it's redlining or those types of things, the segregation that happened in the North that nobody ever talked about, but happened in those neighborhoods like in Chicago, New York, Philly, some of these places, you know, where the uh, punitive segregation, you know, were... You know, you're put into certain areas that environmentally weren't good or economically, you know, and all those types of things. All that shit was forest racism, you know, and hopefully we're coming to a time where some of this starts to become accountable because, you know, bullhorn is like people are smarter now. It used to be that people didn't care about being bullhorn racist, especially in the 60s. Man, People did not give a shit. But there's so much for people, I think, to lose these days, except for your Karens who really haven't understood the memo yet. But it's the forest racism that I think we need to be concerned with. And not just racism, I said the other things. So I will say forest racism matters, you guys. It matters. Keep an eye out for it uh, because it is insidious. The way that people can speak something in front of us, but behind closed doors, they are speaking something else. There you go. That's all I got. All right. Uh, stick around. We got a really fun uh, subject to talk about with Jay Ellis. Lawrence, you guys. Lawrence Hive. Stick around. You're right.
This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. All right, welcome back, everybody. I have a couple of gentlemen on here who's kind of enterprising out there in the world, shaking things up, making things happen, reaching out to the community. And uh thought we'd have them uh, on Black on the Air here. There's a podcast called Written Off where uh, they uh, speak with formerly incarcerated young writers uh, with their vulnerable poems and honest stories. And it is headed by... Uh, Mr. Jay Ellis, who's a producer on this, y'all know him as Lawrence on Insecure. And of course, Walter Thompson Hernandez, who is a writer for the New York Times and is a author of, uh, was it The Compton Cowboys, I believe, a couple of years so, ago? Yeah. yeah, I think so. A couple of things like that. <laughs> Welcome to Black on the Air, guys. How's it going? Hey, thanks for having us, man. Hello, Larry. It's nice to talk to you. Such an interesting project here. It's so specific. and and. Uh, you know, it's it sounds very, very cool. It sounds like something that would happen in the '60s. You know, this type of thing. You know, a no, it really does because it's it's a literary reach out. It's like when's the last time we've had a literary reach out? You know, yeah. to people and that type of thing. So, my hat off to you, gentlemen. <laughs> so, tell me how this all came together, and let's uh, let's talk about. It. So, uh, I gave a brief description, but can you describe what you're doing out there right now? What is what is uh, written off? And I, I love the double entendre there. Yeah, man. You know, uh, about five or six years ago, my producing partner, Aaron Bergman, took he teaches creative writing classes with the organization called Inside Out Writers mm-hmm. uh, here in Los Angeles County. And they teach at um, a couple of the of the juvenile halls here and some of the adult facilities. But anyway, he asked me one day I was still on the game at the time, actually. And he asked me. Mm-hmm if I would come in a class, cause he was like, yo, most of these kids watch the game. Like they know who you are. It would blow their mind if you came in. So I was like, yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I go <laughs> in and that day he uses this Kendrick Lamar song as a prompt mm-hmm. to get all the kids to write about all the things they know. And, and kind of like a stream of consciousness type of, stream, uh, it doesn't minute, have to be poetic or that type of thing, but it's just getting it all out. Right. Yep. 15 mm-hmm. minute free write. You can write in any way you want. Some wrote mm-hmm. raps, some wrote poems, some wrote mm-hmm. short stories. Like they got to write in any form they wanted for 15 minutes. And then mm-hmm. at the end of it, they're invited to stand up and mm-hmm. read their piece. They don't have to. It's completely their choice. Uh, but they're invited to stand up and read their piece. And I was and what was the blown. age range of, of these uh, kids, Jane? I mean, we're remember? probably talking 13, 12, wow. I might even been the youngest up to wow. 17 was the oldest. Right. And they yeah. were kids who were in for a multitude of things. A yeah. couple of them were being tried for their fitness, which means they're being tried. They're, they're, they are, the system is going through the motions of seeing if they can be tried as adults, if they're mm. fit to be tried as adults. Right. So it was, a, it was a big range of folks who were in there and, you mm-hmm. know, these are primarily black and brown kids. Right. Right. And so, mm-hmm. I walked out of that class and each one of them, you could see them kind of stand a little bit taller and just feel a little bit more proud as they listed off all the things they knew, as they heard themselves say all the things that they knew in life. It could be Pythagorean theorem. It could be, <laughs> uh, right. It could be 
They understand the court system. It could be mm-hmm. it, it's just this, literally this knowledge base that they had. And you could see each of them realize that they were smarter than what they themselves thought. And probably and, no one had ever asked their opinion about anything. No or, one. Or right? wanted Most to hear people, from them. Right. Yeah. No, no, no one wanted they, they Most folks look at them and see them as a case number or a liability in some way. The DA sees them as someone that they quickly need to process. The judge sees them as someone they quickly need to discipline. Right. Mm. No one looks at them and says, you seem like a smart kid. Like, what do you think got you here? You know what I mean? It just has an actual conversation with them and lets them express themselves and use their voice. Mm. So I think, Larry, I think have you done young storytellers before. No, no, I haven't. Um, I did, well, I started my career, though, at the Taper. Uh, it was their improvisational theater project. This was years ago. And mm-hmm. we went to a situation like this, like juvenile situation, and we did workshops with the kids and that. And, and we got to hear from them. And it, it was the same type of thing, but it wasn't a writer workshop. It was more performative, you know. Right. And right. this was years ago. So I've been involved in this type of thing before, but it was years ago. Yeah, But from a different perspective, yeah. Yeah. So so a very similar thing. Young Storytellers goes inside of elementary schools here in Los Angeles County. Mm-hmm. And they're primarily in really good neighborhoods. They're sure. Some of the better elementary <laughs> schools in the city, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, testing wise. And they basically take some folks in, help these kids learn how to write. They write a story. And then at the very end, some of the studios in town put on this big production where they invite the Larry Wilmores of the world yeah. and all these actors and well-known folks to come up on stage and read their pieces. And I was like, oh, this is great. I did it before. I had an amazing sure. time. It was great. It's kind of like the I Have a Dream Foundation, kind of what they do and work with kids and stuff. Right. Very similar. Very similar. Mm-hmm. And so I just kept thinking to myself, oh, why aren't we doing this for young kids who no one hears their voice? Mm-hmm. And these kids, a lot of them naturally have stories to tell and they're gifted writers, right? And they are influenced very often by people who are uh, great writers in their own right, primarily through music, but still great writers in their own way and storytellers sure. in their own way. So um, Aaron and I kicked around this idea and we were like, oh, what if we got some celebs to come and read their pieces? And we did a podcast and we put their writing out to the world and just kind of uplifted their voices. Yeah. And Walter Thompson Hernandez was crazy enough to come along (laughs) (laughs) and take this ride with us. Uh, We we met him in a a meeting like a few months earlier. And I was like, yo, I think Walter would be great for this. And Aaron pitched him on it. And he was like, I'm in. Yeah, I'm 100 percent in. And and Walter, where are these where's the where are these kids coming from right now? What you're doing right now? And how are you choosing the uh, individuals that you're showcasing? Right. Well, well, it's um the selection process, I think, was like mostly on the shoulders of, of Aaron and Jay and mm-hmm. on, on the folks at Inside Out. And it was kind of like based on their, um, you know, pre-existing relationship with like a lot of the writers. Right. So, so my my experience was sort of that, you know, a lot of the folks were already selected mm-hmm. and sort of like I would meet them in person and we sort of like you know, talk for a little bit and then just start interviewing. Right. But it, it was, it, it was, it was interesting and really cool because like, even though like I had just sort of met a lot of these folks, you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes before or, or, or half an hour before interviewing them, it, it almost kind of felt like, you know, me and them had already established like a rapport and, and kind of had already been mm-hmm. friends for a long time because like, I, I mean, I think um, Jay said it kind of earlier, you know, like I said yes to this project, you know, almost immediately Aaron, emails me and uh, kind of gives me like, like the, 
the rundown. I was like, I'm in, right? And 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 I and I said I'm in because like in, in so many different ways, like I was like one of these folks at, at, at one point, you know, like I was someone who was like expelled from like five different high schools growing up. You know, I was like mm-hmm. locked up for like a day or two in, in juvie, you know. So like and, and, and kind of thinking about who I was at, at 13, 14 and, and who my friends were and kind of the 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 creativity, right? And and the artistry that like wasn't really celebrated at that age just kind of really um um steered me towards saying yes to this immediately. Let me ask you more about that. What was your what was happening in your life at that time, Walter? Do you remember like is yeah. it a matter of getting pushed off a track or never being on a track or what what was happening if you don't mind speaking no, about that time sure. or like um that's a great question. I think like for me what was happening was that like I, it, it was interesting, right? Cuz cuz I had a mom who was in a PhD program at UCLA. Mm-hmm. Right. So my mom was like getting her PhD and um, education was celebrated in your home, as we yeah, say. Yeah, right, yeah, right, right. 100%, yeah. right. So, so like uh-huh. it wasn't that like, you know, single mom. Yes. Right. Sure. But 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 it wasn't that I was coming from, you know, it, like a, a broken home, per se. Right. Right. But, but my experience was that like, you know, I was still growing up in the hood. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I was still going to a school where like I had to share a textbook with like three different people. Right. right. So, so, so the, the, the impacts of, of where I was growing up was like still around. And, you know, I've always been someone who, who was kind of like been kind of like wild, you know, and, and, and interested and, and, and mm-hmm. kind of like, you, you know, doing different types of things. So, so I think like I was impacted by a lot of the things that, that were happening around me. So, so like, it wasn't that like my mom was like trying her best, you know, she was, she was a grad student, but also working two jobs and like had this boyfriend in the house who wasn't the best person. So me and him always kind of clashed. So kind of like, I didn't want to be home. Right. And, and, and so I found that love, right. And, and, and support and affection in friends of mine who kind of had similar experiences who also didn't want to be home, who, who didn't have, you know, certain guidance and stuff. So mm-hmm. all that to say is that like in, in working on this show and hosting this show, you know, um, the, the sort of connections I had with a lot of the folks was incredibly organic, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like Candace and and Jimmy and 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 different types of people who we um who we had on on the show who I was like that's someone who I was best friends with you know last 13 14 mm-hmm. and so having these conversations is was a really interesting way of sort of like reliving a lot of the experiences that I had yeah it seems to be a common theme with a lot of uh I'll use the word kids you know the young people who uh go down a certain track you know like that theme of identity and wanting to belong to a group and where you feel like you belong to something that feels like family. Cause there's something going on with your family. It seems to be a common theme. And, and, you know, I always say there are always rotten apples that that's probably where they should be, you know, but there are always, yeah. there's the good bunch that uh, it's hard not to be in that because that yeah. magnetic pull is so, right. is so strong depending on your surroundings, you know, like, yeah. That's why I wanted to ask you, because obviously your your mom, you didn't have education deprivation. You had environment deprivation, which is different. You know, it's and it's it's those which pull can be the strongest and how can you be protected? And and, uh, you know, it's interesting that there's so much commonality in that with a lot of these kids and all they need is that little door open to that to that other lane. Right. Yeah. And and, um, I know like we're talking about music earlier. right? It's almost like. A Kendrick Lamar sort of thing, right? Like, sure. Good, good who's sick. from Compton? Right? Yeah, who's yeah. from Compton? You right. know, and like a, a Kendrick Lamar to me is a perfect example of a lot of these folks who, who are in this show. You know, good kids, Mad City, right? And like yeah. that is like I don't think any of these folks like I don't think any of us are like born with the 
with the need or drive to like want to do like, you know, bad shit out in the world right. you know, or, or like do this or do that. It's just that, you know, we're really impacted by the experiences around us. And, and I think for me, it was almost like I had to sort of like prove myself in like a really interesting way. Right. Because I have mm-hmm. a mom who's at UCLA, you know, getting her PhD in, in literature and none of my friends had that experience. So like on, on one hand, like I'm trying to sort of like, you know, do more than my friends are doing because I'm trying to prove myself to like, uh, you know, to like a group of friends who, who, who uh, you know, really supported me. Tell me about, uh, Jay, tell me about some of the writers that you guys have showcased so far. Yeah, man. I mean, what an amazing group of folks, uh, you know, to Walter's point earlier, Candace, who, I mean, her piece is absolutely amazing. Kiki Palmer read her piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was about love and it was about like how love could change her life. Ultimately. I mean, Walter would probably do a better job of telling it than I can. Cause he sat and talks with her, but it was ultimately <laughs> about how like a hug and some affection and love goes such a long way. And mm-hmm. like, that is how you build a community and how you build and make folks stronger and especially young folks, uh, as opposed to like the tough, hard, you know, regimented do this, do that. Um, right. Uh, Jimmy Wu, who is actually ILW's executive director, has such a powerful story. Jimmy spent Walters at 13 years in jail. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah, he spent 13 years in jail. He was actually ILW's very first student, like yeah. 20-something years ago, uh, when he was a, a 16, 17-year-old kid in jail. Then went and spent 13 years and then came out, bounced around for a little bit, and then landed at ILW and has now been there for a while and has become the executive director, but his story is, I mean, the ups and the downs, man. And they, t- yeah. again, talking about like to Walter's point, talking about somebody who doesn't come from a broken home, right? He yeah. had his mom and dad in the house and a younger brother in the house. Crazy. And just, you know, I think, well, Walter, you probably remember this too. I mean, you grew up out here, but I think like, I think about like the nineties and growing up in the nineties and it was just like, how could you not want to be a part of that? Like the homies, right. like the homies just looked Boys so in cool the hood. Yeah. and they were always together and they yeah. had rides and like, it was just such a, it, it was such an attractive thing. Yeah. And like there was, you know, the, the, the flamboyance and the charisma and the music and everything about it was so appealing. Whether you had, Right. Whether you had one parent at home or whether you had both parents at home, mm-hmm. it was still something that you kind of saw as like, damn, that is that is that is cool. That is the definition of yeah. cool. And Jimmy is someone who kind of fell into that in his own way, uh, even though he had both of his his folks. Yeah, uh, a, a lot. A lot of kids of color don't have the privilege of being able to compartmentalize thug life. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? They're not. They don't have the privilege of being able to compartmentalize that. Where it's just singing it in the shower, and then they're off to the to, to the clean suburbs. You know, nah. right? You know, it's it is. It was such a way of life. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's, it's, absolutely. It's, it's wild. Um, okay. But yeah, man, we had such a really talented group. I mean, Kyle, uh, who Walter got to talk to, Kyle was in fire camp at the time. So Kyle had been through, Kyle had been in, I think Kyle had been in jail for about eight, had been in jail for about eight or nine years at this point. And Kyle started out in a medium security uh, and then, mm-hmm. you know, had for good behavior, part, partially and population control, pop, partially, he got put uh, bumped down to uh, the lowest level of security in the state of California, which is actually fire camp. We send folks, a lot of folks don't know this, but in the state of California, yeah. we send folks who are incarcerated 
uh, to go fight fires, I right? Am. We train, yeah. we train them to go fight fires and send them as first responders to fires. And right. so, uh, some big, the big massive ones. And so Kyle was in fire camp and, and, and Walter got to talk to him. Uh, and it was wild. And, and Aaron got to talk to him as well. And that was wild because, you know, we went through, you here to collect call. You are getting a collect yeah. call from the state of California. Right, Department right. Of, right. We went through and then the call drops and then you got to pick it up. And then he only has so much time on Tuesday. So then you got to wait till he gets his next call on Wednesday to finish the interview. So that was also, you know, I think just such a testament to like Walter and to our producers and to Lemonada, our partner on this of like, putting this all together with like knowing that, you know, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't easy to get this conversation. Sure. I was struck um, uh, listening to one where uh, it might've been Jimmy, where, where it uh, talking about how difficult it is to reach someone, depending on how much time they're serving, you know, like if, if you're in there for a long amount of time, you're more susceptible to having your life changed than if you know you're going to be out there soon, you could go back to your old habits or something. Mm -hmm. There's so many challenges, you know, just to, to, to getting to open ears, you know, uh, who are some of the people that you guys are trying to reach with this? Like who, who would you like to hear this? I mean, there are probably different types of audiences you're going for, not just one type, I would think. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think we want anyone, if you've ever had anyone who's been impacted by the system, like, I think we want you to hear it. If you've ever, uh, if you have ever not hired someone because of their criminal record or their past, like, I think we want you to hear it. If you think that just because someone's ever been a juvenile hall that they're a lost cause and they're never going to get on the right track, uh, we want you to hear it. And at the same time, you know, we talked about, we wanted people in town and LA to hear it. Like, we wanted, you know, we wanted someone at Universal or someone at Sony or, you know, an executive somewhere to be like, oh, my God, I love that story. That story could be an amazing movie or that story could be an amazing book or a short film or whatever it may be. And we wanted, you know, to give our writers an opportunity like they're all passionate about writing. And this is something that they mm-hmm. all love and they want to continue to do. So we wanted to make sure that like folks who could help uh, or who would be interested in, in helping further their careers and developing their voices and uplifting their voices also got a chance to listen to these stories. Yeah, that that's awesome. You know, my father was a probation officer growing up, so I was very oh. familiar with the camps that these kids are at and that type of thing. And ironically, both of my sisters at one point were in juvenile hall. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the way families work, right? You know, uh, it was, uh, I'll never forget that. The irony of, I think this, which is why I'm a comedy writer primarily, you know, the <laughs> irony of ironies, but I'm very familiar with how kids can just get in there and just be lost and forgotten. Yeah. And that type yeah. of thing. And the only people that directly care about them are the people that are actually taking care of them in the camps. Yeah. You know? uh, and what's wild for a lot of these kids, too, is like they go in and, you know, if you're doing a year and a half, two years of doobie and you're coming yeah. from, if you are coming from an unstable situation, there is a chance that the court system doesn't know how to get a hold of your sure. parents once it yeah. is time for you to go home. Right. Like then right. that becomes a whole nother system. And so to your point, like the, the, the folks that are around them, whether they're in these camps or whether they're in these halls, like they do become very influential and very important mm-hmm. to shaping, you know, who that person could potentially be and getting them back on that right, getting them back on a path uh, once they get to go home. Walter, what were some of the biggest surprises for you coming into this, 
project? Did anything kind of uh, hit you in a way that you didn't expect or kind of open your eyes to anything? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I was, I was expecting, you know, a lot of great art, right? Like a lot of great writing and a lot of great poetry. And I think we, we all heard that. Um, what I didn't expect for me personally was like the impact of these stories and like how sort of, you know, like I think sometimes we, we, we try to sort of compartmentalize, right? Things, experiences and traumas in our life that we have experienced and like have had to move on. And I think so many of us are so busy, right? That we have to sort of like, find a way to sort of like push forward but for me you know listening to to jimmy woo to jimmy Valdez, uh, and it's like i was just like it just sort of reminded me of you know just how sort of precarious i think the realities for a lot of folks are and i think um you know just how lucky a lot of us are you know if, if we're being really honest here and, mm-hmm. and Absolutely. Just, I think how much more work has to be done in terms of like you know erasing a lot of these stigmas for, for folks who've been incarcerated right and i think it wasn't that it was a surprise for me, but it was just a reminder, right? That 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 you know, I think so many of these folks like should not be judged on on on, on a single act, right? I, I think I think all of us, right? Like we are so much more than like one sort of error that we committed, right? And and I think like that was surprising for me, just how much of an impact these stories would, would have on me, and and how much it would like um, kind of like force me to. To, to revisit, you know, a lot of the experiences I had growing up in, in LA. And like Jay said earlier, you know, I think for a lot of us who grew up in the nineties in LA, like, you know, whether it was gangs or graffiti or whatever it was, like, it all just seemed so sort of like lucrative and exciting and interesting. And, and I think it just made me sort of reflect on, on, on the experiences of, of growing up in Los Angeles. And, and also, you know, for a lot of us who, who grew up here, like just how lucky we all were to have survived the 90s, mm-hmm. right? Like I was born in 1985, I'm 36 now, right? So I was kind of like, you just know- Just a baby, just a baby. Yeah, yeah, right. But, <laughs> but you know what I mean? No, like, like I was sort of like, like 95, 96, I was yeah. like 11, 10, 11 now. But that was sort of sure. peak 90s. And like, yeah. even, even me seeing and surviving the 90s to me, I was like, damn, you know, I don't know how I did it, but but I'm here. And, and, and I know that a lot of folks who were in the show also maybe feel the same way too. Have there been- what has been the uh, stickiness rate on people in terms of doing this? Uh, uh, have many of them done it more as a therapeutic exercise or have you seen some of them saying, well, this could be a vocation. This is something I actually want to do. Yeah. Um, I think it, it's, it's kind of a combination of both, right? Like mm-hmm. I think for a lot of folks, particularly off camera, you know, mm-hmm. there was a sort of like feeling that I got, that this was incredibly therapeutic for a lot of people. I think, you know, a lot of these folks have done really amazing work with IOW and have sort of expressed like different vulnerabilities and, and open up in ways that, 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 you know, write, writing on a piece of paper, I, I think allows us to enter a world where we're not judged, right? Where, where, where it's like, you know, we can be honest with ourselves because it's just somebody and, and a piece of paper. And I think uh, nearly everyone expressed that, right? Where it's like writing becomes an, an act of therapy and an act of like mm-hmm. resilience, right? Where, where, where so much can happen, but, but also, I think, you know, some folks who interviewed, um, you know, want to pursue writing and and want to pursue, you know, the arts. And, and also some other folks are doing other things, which is also fine. You know, I think someone like like Jimmy, right, who who doesn't really write as much as he used to, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't maybe have the same sort of like literary aspirations. Sure. But, but still uses uses writing as a way to 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 reconnect with himself. And I think a lot of folks also feel the same way. 
has there been a discovery of worlds for a lot of these people that, hey, there's this literary world that exists out here that is yours for the taking. There's a Chester Himes out there. There's Richard Wright. There's James Baldwin. There's Maya Angelou. You know, there's all the Nikki Giovanni, some of her poems. You know, there's all these voices that I think maybe people weren't even aware of that were speaking some of the same things, you know, yeah. 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, no, no, definitely. You know, I think there's like, a, I think in like, whether it's like the, the TV and films, like TV and film space or the literary space or, or, mm-hmm. or, or, or like whatever sort of um, world it is, I think there's like a, a need for authenticity. You know, I think like right. there's a, a premium on, on authentic stories and stories that, that sort of are built on real experiences. And I think everyone in, in this show kind of, you know, is writing from a place where like they are the experts of their own story. Right. And I think like there's such a premium on, on, on what they're creating because like these are coming from very real experiences. And I think you can't really replicate that. Do you guys think just looking at the culture in general, not just this particular group, like where's writing in the culture right now? Is it, is it, are we kind of losing that? Do you think, I mean, we're in such a, texting culture and like you know <laughs> the thing i feel like i you know that's why i had to give you guys credit i'm like writing like what young people even know what writing is for christ's sakes you know and it's not required of anybody anymore yeah it's wild especially when you think about like i think about even little things like they don't teach cursive anymore and i'm like Wait, exactly why, right why did i spend all that why time did i I'm so great, but i'm grateful for but i'm grateful for learning cursive now yes. like, you know what i mean i'm like in last exactly but you know I, it, it's interesting i mean i we're probably in a I, I would say i'm probably in a bit of a bubble in a way where right mm-hmm. like we do i i know so many writers Right. Um, whether it is friends who write in TV and film or whether it's folks who write for publications and magazines and newspapers or whatever, or whether it's folks who, you know, are in the literary world and they're writing books. So I, I am often surrounded by writers. I will say there's a writing group that I, I meet with out here in, in, in L.A. We try to get together once a month and I'm the oldest one in the group. Uh, and I'm turning 40, I'm turning 40 in December yeah. and I'm the oldest one in the group and the youngest one is like 25. So I do think, uh. I think there is always going to be like, I hope, and I hope it, it continues to grow more to be honest, but I think there's something Walter said earlier, like the ability to reconnect with yourself mm-hmm. and not be judged and and whether you want to put that away and it's just for you or whether you want to share it with the world, I do think there is, there is space for it because I do think people want that authenticity. They want that connection. They want to be grounded. They want to tell a story. They want their voice to be heard in some way. And sometimes that voice isn't like just in 150 or 140 characters, whatever Twitter is. And sometimes, you know what I mean? Sometimes it is that. And sometimes it's like, Oh, I got something a little bit more that I want to say. And I, I I think we'll, we'll see that continue and and hopefully grow more. I will say our young folks, a lot of times, or or the young folks at IOW rather, most of them will tell you they, they can write a rap. Most of them will be like, Hey, I can write a, I can write six to give me 16 bars. I got you. (laughs) Right, 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 right. But then when you sit them down and you give them, you know, a reading from Baldwin or you give them a quote or you give them something as a prompt and you sit them down to go write, mm-hmm. you see that like all of a sudden they're taking this like skill that they they have a feeling of and they kind of have their hands around and being able to write a couple verses and you mm-hmm. see that expand into 
a story and you see that expand into a poem or into something, you know, a little bit more substantial. And I, I think that like, if we can continue to show folks that like, even with this little thing that you love so much, right. you can do something so much larger with it. I think we'll, we'll hopefully see even more and more folks uh, be pulled into writing. I think Jay is absolutely right. And, and I also think that like, I don't think writing is going anywhere, but I also think that our ideas of what writing looks like and even what a writer looks like has mm-hmm. changed. Like, right. I said earlier that like, this is like a, a 1960s show, right? Where, mm-hmm. where it's like, like, you know, probably white dude on like a typewriter, right? Like mm-hmm. writing in some like mountain cabin escape, right? And, and it's pipe. like, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, smoking pipe. And, and I think like our, our ideas of, of what a writer looks like and how a writing has changed. Like, I don't mean personally, like, like I wrote a book mostly on my phone, right? Which is kind of like, like a crazy idea. And, mm. and, and I feel like young folks are kind of taking writing and, and applying it in different ways. And, and we're not sort of having to like sit down on a typewriter anymore. And, and, and maybe our writing is changing, but the sort of existential you know, questions that we're asking while we're writing, I think that's universal. And like, that's not going away anytime soon. Do you have hope that there's a, there'll be more Walter Thompson's coming up, people that want to do this types of things from this circle, or they're just, who knows where these people are going to be springing up from? I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't, like, I think there's only like one of me and there's only one of you and there's only like a... a No, just kidding. (laughs) No, but, but, but... but I do think that that it's like, you know, we're always trying to build on like what folks did right. you know, 10, 15 years ago. And I, and I think, you know, it's our turn for only a limited amount of time. And like yeah. we don't have like the platforms or, or the space or like mm-hmm. people caring about what we have to say or write about or, or, or direct or whatever it is. And I think like, you know, it's just like kind of building on, on, on past experiences and legacies. Mm-hmm. And that's all we, we could really do. Jay, how do you how do you make something like writing sexy, you know? Like, where does the sexiness come in? You know what I mean? Like, when you talk about rap, to me, the sexiness is in the performance of it, you know? But there right. is there is a sexiness in having to come up with bars in the moment, you know? And, yeah. and, and you know, and raising your game each time, you know, you're coming, you're versing or whatever it is, you yeah. know? There is a sexiness in that if you know how to do that. But But how do you, you know, imbue a sexiness to writing itself to young people that that may not know that there is a romantic, <laughs> there is a romanticism <laughs> in this. It is, it is a gateway to something, you know, like yeah, if, if you look at sports, like baseball to me, like when people talk about baseball's not doing enough to get back people in baseball, I, to me, it's the opposite problem. Baseball just isn't sexy anymore to black people the way it used to be. You know, it doesn't have that sex appeal that it used to have where the sex appeal now is in more in the other sports, especially basketball where Basketball really exploits the personalities of players more than any other sport, probably, you know, Um, and it feels more current, you know, where baseball almost feels 19th century, let alone 20th century, you know, and that's what I mean about like writing when I talk about the arcane nature of it, you know, like, can it have a certain romanticism with young people? I think so. I think when you think about folks like, and now I can't, literally, I just lost her name. It was on the tip of my tongue, but um, the young woman who uh, spoke at inauguration. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Amanda Gorman. Yeah. Yes. I'm, the, I'm the worst person to recall names. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. She's yes, brilliant. Thank you. 
She's brilliant, right? Thank mm-hmm. you, Walter. And I think you look at someone like that. I think she's yeah. really writing sexy, That's right? Like she's yeah. very clearly not only did she, not only did she go do that at that age, but then right. she was on the cover of two hundred and sixty-seven million magazines in right. the same week, right? And I think all of a sudden, young folks are like, "Oh, she's speaking her truth, unedited, yeah. right? She is unedited speaking her truth." How can I not be attracted to that? Like, why? You know what I mean? I think something like that is like because for so long, I think especially like I think when the three of us were probably taught writing at, right, it was always very much in a box. You write mm-hmm. like this and it has to do that. And it has to be a, a subject and a predicate. It has to follow all these things. Right. And like, there were so many rules around it and how a story had to end. And right. And I think while that is still the classic way of storytelling, like we are now seeing that like there are millions of ways that you can tell your story and it can still have, insane impact and still have your voice be imbued with your voice and your point of view. And it doesn't have to feel edited. It doesn't feel like you have to compromise uh, or, uh, or, or, or tell less than you wanted to tell. And I think that is sexy. I think the freedom of that is sexy. Yeah. Go ahead. It's also, I think like, like what, 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 what I remember and um, you know, about the nineties, for example, right. Is that I feel like it wasn't cool when I was growing up, like, to be a nerd, right? To be like, mm-hmm. like weird, right? To be like a geek or whatever. And, and I feel like, so, you know, for a lot of us, like we kind of had to hide that version of us, right? Like I was that kid, like in the back of class who knew every answer, right? To, to every question, but kind of like put my hand down. Cause like, I don't want to not get the girls. Right. And I, and, 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 and I feel like now there's kind of been like, like a cultural shift where it's kind of, there's more space for a lot of folks of color, right? To like be weird, like it's like cool being a nerd now. And so, so, so I feel like we are kind of in that renaissance where, where like, you know, whether it's like mm-hmm. creating things or like being weird or, or, or being a writer, or being whatever, like it's kind of celebrated in ways that it wasn't back in the days. Look at how real, happy do you think I am? Look how long I had to wait. <laughs> what are you gonna say, Jay? I feel like dudes, dudes like Pharrell and Andre Three Thousand exactly. opened the door, right? Yeah. Like they, I think they opened the door, and sure. because that is where our community often goes first is to hip hop, right? right? Into yes. music, yes. rather. Like exactly. I feel like those dudes opened the door for us that I don't know if like their contribution will ever be recognized in the way that it should because. And I think like, while I am not on that camp now, like I think even early Kanye, like being the polo, being the polo rapper, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. those guys at that time creating these. Well, certainly nerd expression, Kanye, for sure, where he was a a cool nerd. Yeah. Right. And I think like they opened the door in a way that like, you know, and and I'll give, I think there's someone else like, you know, when you look at dope, when you look at like Rick's work with, with that character, like, that young boy being a nerd with a nerd group of friends in the hood, like stuff like sure. that. I feel like really opens the door and you still get your Rocky ASAP. So you still get the dude that sure. we all saw in the nineties and we were like, right. damn, like he got the chain and the girl <laughs> and whatever. Right. But also you look at the nerds and you're like, Oh, but they cool too. And right. also right. they kind of cooler. Cause they're like into a very specific thing. And that yeah. thing is actually really cool. And like, I think that 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 really has opened the door in a lot of way for folks. Yeah, my to generation be, to just be them. It was a little more practical um, because when I was coming up, it was hard to get our individual voices across. You had to fit into the Hollywood mode. Mm. So I was inspired by my peers, Spike and Keenan doing Lemon Color. You know, all these people who we said, "Fuck this shit, we're just going to do our own thing." You know, and mm-hmm. that's what 
like for me, propelled me, even though I had been writing before, it really put it front and center. It's the only way to have true independence and make your mark is you have to be a writer. You have to, as I call it, you know, you have to control the narrative, which now I think younger people are understanding, especially in our business, Jay, show business about controlling that yeah. narrative, whether it's working with Issa, who understood that very early on, or there's so many of us now, you know, there were so few when I was starting this or so few in recognizing that that had to be done. If you yeah. want to have any kind of say in what the stories are, you know, it's so powerful. And to your point, look at like black girl nerds right now. Issa yeah. Rae has created. And, and, and to your point, she did it with writing. Like yeah. she very Shonda. clearly. Shonda Shonda's is another Shonda, one. Yeah. She, she hit that mark first because she came out completely as a nerd with Grey's Anatomy, yeah. you know, this type of thing. It wasn't like when Yvette Bowser had, um, uh, God, I just forgot Yvette show, but you know, the, um, uh, Living Single. Yeah. When Yvette had Living Single, even though Yvette, you could say is that type of person too. She went to Stanford, you know, she's this type mm-hmm. of person, you know, she's a lot like Issa in that way, but you know, she was presenting in this different mode where it was, it was this relatable black experience type of thing. No one would would put it in this other category where, you know, where Shonda had to be reckoned with in a different way. You know, mm-hmm. I guess you mm-hmm. could say she couldn't be dismissed that Hollywood right. likes to do, you know. Right. Power and expression. Uh, yeah, and you no. guys have gotten uh, many uh, actors and stuff to participate in this, which is kind of cool. Yeah, we had a really great group of folks. Um Man, my, my fingers will work and I text yeah. everybody. And I will say everybody, everyone said yes right out yeah. the gate, uh, which is amazing. Like, you know, uh, we had Issa, we had John Legend, Yvonne Orji, uh, Karamo Brown, yeah. Angelique Cabral, um, uh, Danny Ramirez. Um, Randall Park or something. Randall, uh, Randall Park. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. We had just such a great group of folks. Jesse Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, we just had such a great group of folks who lent their time, their talent and opened their hearts. And what's amazing is like every single one of them, after I sent them the piece, hit me back. And they were like, yo, if you ever need me again, mm-hmm. I please like just send me stuff because they were all, I don't want to say so impressed. I think to like what Walter said earlier, I think it hit something in them that they mm-hmm. had probably compartmentalized themselves at some right. point just with the, the day-to-day of life and it just opened this thing back up and made them, it took them back to a place and a time in their own lives, I think in a way. That's and great. so uh, it was really, uh, it was great. They're a great group of folks. Have you guys heard from the audience? What has the reaction been out there in the world? Really great responses. I think like, you know, a lot of folks who I know have, you know, have texted me, have, 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 have called me and, and, you know, have really enjoyed the show. I think for a lot of people, it's like, we all know folks like that, whether like we, we are that person, but we all know somebody who's incredibly talented, you know, at something who, you know, oftentimes doesn't get a platform to, you know, sh- share their story. And, and so I think that from, from, from my end, the responses have been really positive and, you know, a lot of folks have been really drawn to the stories and you sort of pair that with like the celebrity angle, you know, it, and um, it creates a really positive experience for a lot of folks. That's awesome. Well, I really appreciate you guys coming on and talking about this. I just think it's really a, it's just such a cool project, you know, it just seems like there's so many possibilities with it and places that it can, you know, rise to or expand to and that type of thing. 
Jay, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask you about how you feel about Insecure, man. <laughs> Congratulations, by the way. It's such a great run. You know, I'm so, I, I always hate using this word with some people, but I have to, I'm so proud of you, man. You know, seeing where you started on this and just watching you and you as a man and what you're doing out there producing and the whole cast, man. When I think yeah. of where that started and where it is now, it's amazing. What is the, how, what's the journey been like for you? The insecure journey. It's crazy, man. Like, I don't even know if I could really put it into words yet. I think I'm still trying to like figure it all out for myself. Um, you know, it has been, um, <laughs> it's amazing. You know, you go to work every single day with these folks and, everyone is so talented and so gracious and so kind. And also like you don't get, there is no, there are no days off. Everyone is like so good at what they do, whether it is as a performer or as a writer, um, it makes you get better. Like you are constantly in space. The iron sharpens iron, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's literally the, the quote from the Bible, like the verse from the Bible, like literally Mm-hmm. You are becoming a better person every single day and you're, you are inspired to be a better creator and search for truth and authenticity yeah. uh, in a way that like, I just don't know if you get that on other shows sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and then to be able, you know, to have the support of HBO mm-hmm. has been amazing. Uh, such an amazing partner to be able to, learn so much from Issa and Princess and you and Melina. Like there's so many people who were involved (laughs) in this show and you look at their careers, where they started, where Mm -hmm. they're at now and how they have kind of really opened the doors for folks. And you look back and you go like, Oh, how could I not do the same thing when I get that opportunity? And I think like that is something that I've also taken away from this. And then like the last thing I think is like having the opportunity to play Lawrence Walker, who mm-hmm. is a dude who we rarely get to see on screen that often. We don't get to see a young black man who is vulnerable, who mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily know how to express himself, who is trying to find how to be a better person mm-hmm. or make better decisions, but often because he's living between his ears and like not conversating and having conversation rather and communicating with folks, he constantly he's kind of making bad decisions. Like we don't we don't we don't really get to see that guy that often. We don't really get to talk about the young black dude who's depressed because he went to college and then he got out and he was like, I'm about to be popping. And then all of a sudden there was no opportunity for him. And so yeah. I just I know so many of my boys who have been through that. I went through that. I graduated from college thinking like, oh, I'm about to get all the jobs. I moved <laughs> yeah. to L.A. I moved to L.A. walked through Beverly Hills like, wow. yo, somebody's about to make me. There's an agent right now walking down the street who's about to find me. Nobody was there. No, yeah. they were all in their office working. And so, like, you know, I just I, I just know my, my own story, like so many friends of mine who have gone through such a similar mm-hmm. journey. And so, like, it, it is an honor to be able to tell that story and to be able to play that character, because I think he is like such a relatable, he's an every man. I think there is a lot of like, there, there's so many of us who have gone through a version in the relationship stuff, in the work Mm -hmm. stuff, depression, after a breakup, trying to be a playboy or being out there on your whole phase, whatever it is, there's so many of us who yeah. have gone through versions of that. And so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. One of the things that I really loved what you guys did too, with the show is it's, you know, 
Issa and Molly, we know we're going to see the different ups and downs and the emotions of the relationship. But for Lawrence, for your character, for us to be able to watch a character like yours and experience heartbreak, you know, and yeah. it's not just one-sided. You Normally it's one-sided, but to see it. And to me, there was different types of heartbreak. I'll never, one of my favorite things is when you have no idea that you're striking out at that pitch. I think it was season <laughs> three. I'm like, oh my God, this is heartbreaking, you know? And it's like, that was great, right? You're in that environment. Because that was about Hollywood too, you know, and about yeah, so many yeah. things. Oh, my whole body was like, oh, you know? <laughs> but the way you, ah, oh, man, your character wore those things with such an innocence too, which even made it more heartbreaking in some ways. You know, do you yeah. have any favorite moments from the show or anything that stands out? Any particular instance that stands out, you go, man, that was like, that was, oh. Yeah, you know, that's a good one. That woo-woo moment is a good one where he's pitching it because I do oh. believe, to your point, you're also talking about like one of in a room. Yeah. Yes, exactly. What, right? That's so a big also, part of it, by the way, yeah. It's a yeah. huge part of it. So like the mm-hmm. pressure and the burden of that on top yes. of, oh, I think I'm coming in with this pitch that yes, they're going to love. exactly. And then... You're like, wait, am I, is my, then you have to question yourself in a lot of ways. Cause then you go, is my pitch actually bad or right. do they not understand the pitch because right. of what I look like and who I am? So right. then all of a sudden you end up in this weird space. And like, I, again, if you haven't gone through, if you have not gone through that, you will go through that. Like we, mm-hmm. as a person of color, it is, it is almost like a rite of passage. You, right. at some point, that is something that you will go through. And so you know, and for him, obviously, it was fine, and that it was it was his pitch, uh, mm-hmm. and and the environment, but also, but more importantly, the pitch. But I look at that; I, I'll, I that's a moment that always stands out to me. I think four oh eight with Issa and Lawrence last mm. year, uh, that whole night of them, they're kind of before sunset, yeah. after you know, after sunset, before sunrise moment. That mm-hmm. whole episode, I think, is still. I still think it's one of the most romantic episodes of half hour television I've ever seen in my life. And I know I'm biased, but I truly believe it. Um, (laughs) I think the finale of season two was super powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously the finale of season one was his own, you know, know. I'm getting chills. The Twitter, the Twitter sphere uh, blew up on that. And the Lawrence hive was created. Oh yeah. That's true. It absolutely was the Lawrence hive. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It came out of that whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, any uh, spoilers coming up for this final season? Anything? Uh... I mean, you know, we're going to watch him learn what being a father is. Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, I think I, I think it's really to be very real. You know, uh, Condola posed this thing to him of like, you can be as involved or uninvolved as you sure. want. Like, I won't hold it against you. And I think we are now going to watch Lawrence walk that line and yeah. like figure out what that what that means. Again, I think, I, you know, the one kind of like spoiler I'll give is like, we know Lawrence always wants to do the right thing. Yes, definitely. We know he wants to do the wants right thing. To. It's, yes. it's, a, it's usually the way he goes about doing the right thing that becomes right. the problem. Uh, uh, and so I think that's what we'll get to see see him battle with this season. That's awesome. Uh, Walter, what's up uh, next for you? Uh, doing more of these types of things? Uh, what else are we going to see? By the way, I want to ask you, Compton Cowboys, what an interesting book. Hmm. Any thoughts of that being a film or anything like that? Oh yeah, man. Um, Searchlight bought the rights to uh, yeah. uh, that film, um, like right when we signed the the, uh, the book yeah. deal years ago. And um, there's been like three scripts, I think now um, mm-hmm. at this point. 
it's up. So it, it, it's doing well. Um, personally, like I've been moving more into TV and film. Like I have a film Sundance coming out this year that I wrote and directed. Mm-hmm. Um, working on the next book, which is due in February. It's like a memoir, actually, about like Great. 90s LA, about me and my mom. Um, I love that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, awesome. Yeah, yeah. so I'm, I'm transitioning more to like TV and film stuff. Um, yeah. And it's been really cool to be able to like, you know, go from like journalism to, to like audio to like TV and film now. So that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, congratulations, gentlemen. Like I said, I really applaud <laughs> go ahead, taking this tack. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's so easy for these kids to be invisible in our world, especially these days where there's so much emphasis on flash of people on Instagram and showing, you know, living <laughs> your best life. You know, and some people are in situations, you know, that are just unfortunate, you know, and they don't have an outlet. They don't have people that would care to reach out to them you know, and show them that, hey, you matter too. It's very powerful what you guys are doing. I just want to give you props for that. You know, even no matter what happens to them, this will touch them in a way that will have an effect, you know, and it may jump to that next generation where they're able to to give that thing. So it is a gift, gentlemen, is what I'm saying. <laughs> this <laughs> of what you you're doing. So congratulations. Written Off is the name of the podcast. And where can they find it? Apple, Spotify, uh, and anywhere else you get your podcast. It's Jay Ellis and Walter Hernandez. Thanks for being on Black on the Air, guys. Thanks, Thanks man. Insecure! Final season hey. coming up, you guys! Yeah. <laughs>